You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. Tonight on Into the Portal, we take you back to the blood-soaked battlefields of the First World War. A conflict the likes of which the world had yet to witness, with new horrors and technologies employed to carry out destruction and suffering. Throughout its various theaters, we find stories of bravery, courage, and incredible feats, as well as tragic ends. But hidden amongst the woodwork of the thousands of wartime tales, we find some of the more bizarre variety. Some men witness strange happenings, creatures, or entities that they struggle to reconcile, while other accounts speak to those that simply vanish. In mid-August of 1915 at Gallipoli, the madness of the Eastern Front had begun. And at the front lines that day was the 5th Norfolk Battalion, sent charging into battle against the Turkish enemy. 250 men and officers, while pushing back the Ottoman forces, were said to have disappeared into a dark cloud. And as the legend has been told, they were never to be seen again. Join us on Into the Portal as we discuss the strange case of the Vanished Battalion. Hello, and welcome back into the portal. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. And we're back with our very first World War I mystery for you guys. Yeah, took long enough to get here. (laughs) I know, right? After all of our years of studying international relations and uh, world conflict in history, we're bringing that to the show this week. (laughs) Totally. And right before we started recording, Amber said jokingly, shout out to Todd Campbell. But genuinely, shout out to Todd Campbell. And those who have attended UBC Okanagan will totally get that reference. Yeah, Todd. Dr. Todd. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, tiny bit of housekeeping. Nothing too major. We just wanted to thank you guys for everyone who participated in the uh, Straight Up Strange Network sticker pack contest. Mm -hmm. It was really successful. We were really happy to see everybody who participated in that and followed us on the Instagram. We're going to be announcing that. Well, I guess this is coming out on Sunday, so the winner was already announced. We're Mm -hmm. recording this ahead of time here. But yeah, it was super awesome. Really cool designs that uh, the winner is going to receive. So if you guys haven't checked out that account, go over and follow us. Even though this contest has passed, we'll have definitely some Stuff coming up in the future. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a cool account. Posting cool stuff. Hit us up. It's at Strange Pods on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, 
Shall we get into it? Let's get into this. Okay. So like Amber said, our very first ever World War I mystery, and this has kind of been talked about in various different circles over the decades. It's a really, truly strange military mystery, though, packed full of sort of bizarre aspects that regardless of what you believe, there's hardcore military buffs that talk about this. There's UFO buffs that talk about this. It's absolutely fit for a Hollywood film, and it has actually been the inspiration for some numerous things. 1999 BBC production, All the King's Men, various books, and so much more. But it's just a really bizarre story that we wanted to break down for you guys because it touches on so many things that Into the Portal is into. So mm-hmm. let's just kind of break down the basics of the legend here. Yeah, so we are talking about World War One. Uh, this was basically taking place in the southeastern front. So we're talking about the Dardanelles campaign uh, against the Turks. So essentially, this is a really horrible and bloody aspect of the war. Uh, A lot of people described it as one of the worst theaters uh, just because of the conditions alone. And for the men of the 5th Norfolk Regiment, uh, they were especially like fish out of water. They had barely ever seen military action. They weren't professional military men. So this was especially brutal. Mm -hmm. And the exact date we're talking about, so we're going to summer. The actual campaign started in the early spring and would last a period of about eight months before it concluded. But we're about halfway through that campaign. So on the afternoon of August 12th, 1915, the 5th Norfolk Battalion, led by Commanding Officer Sir Horace Proctor Beauchamp, were sent charging into battle against the Turkish enemy. Chaos ensued, and where lines of command seemed to break down, the men were all out of position, confused and distressed. But they still advanced, and so the story goes, the visible members of the battalion were taken in by a dark cloud, Mm. never to be seen again. Right. The next day, all that the surviving officers and men knew is that they had disappeared. At this early onset, most of the bodies were never found. There were seemingly no survivors, and they did not turn up as prisoners of war, as the legend goes. And so the spark of this legend was lit into a flame. And although, curiously, there's not as much interest, you would say, like in this bizarre sort of case in the time period, like in in the moment, it wasn't until decades later that this kind of came up. So let's get into a little bit more of the backstory here. Yeah. Okay. So, of course, we're dealing with the height of tensions during the First World War. So we'll give kind of a quick recap just for the context for these men. So World War I, beginning, of course, in 1914 after the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Germany, Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria, the Ottoman Empire, these are the central powers fighting against Great Britain, France, Russia, Italy, Romania, the United States as the allied powers. And with increasing fighting and the need for more men in these new theaters of war, the British Empire would end up using its territorial army for additional manpower. And many of them came from very interesting places around the UK, famous estates and castles and different things like that. And the one entangled in the story that we're talking about today, one very uh, famous particular castle known as the Sandringham Estate, or the Sandringham Castle. So located in Norfolk, England, about 100 miles north of London, the Sandringham Castle Estate covers about 20,000 acres of land, and the British royal family actually acquired it around 1862. Later on, of course, though, we have the start of the war. But prior to this, what's known as the Sandringham Company was sort of created and then would become a part of the Norfolk Regiment, which had been officially formed in 1908. And this was at the personal request of King Edward VII. 
And the king asked this guy named Frank Beck, who was his land property manager. You can think of him as, yeah, I mean, he went around to the various estates and made sure they were running smoothly, Mm -hmm. keeping it ship shape. Kind of like a caretaker. Exactly. And Frank Beck was the man he was, uh, he asked to undertake this task of putting together a territorial army, at least one aspect of it. He was a trusted member of the king's team. And because he was the land manager, he intimately knew all these men across the various estates. He knew them by name personally. And because of this, he was able to recruit them very successfully. So more than 100 part-time soldiers, or what they were known as territorials, uh, became known as today the Territorial Army, which totally reminds me of The Office, the UK version of The Office, because (laughs) Gareth keeps on touting that he's a member of the Territorial Army. Right. Uh, So for those Office fans out there. (laughs) But This is really interesting because they weren't required to go to war, uh, and it was all based on sort of your social status, which I found really interesting. So the custom of the territorial battalions at the time was to sort of base your military rank. uh, It was to be dictated dictated by your social class. So, you know, the estates, butlers, the the gamekeepers, the foremen, the gardeners, they were placed as the, like, non-commissioned officers, whereas the sort of lesser workers, I guess you could say, the farm laborers, the grooms, the household servants... The dairymen, things like this, office clerks, they made up the remaining positions in the territorial military. And this is the reason for the common reference to the territorial army as all the king's men, because it was literally all the king's men working for the estates for the crown. Um, Yeah, pretty interesting. Interesting, yeah. It's it's so funny because that's so formalized, but if you think about it... uh all subjects are the king's men, true. technically, unless you're a woman. <laughs> yeah, very, very true. And they uh, they wanted to fight for them, right? They wanted to fight for the country. Patriotism mm. was high, for sure. They had never yet experienced uh, the horrors of modern warfare. And this war, if anyone has studied, you know, World War One, World War Two, you'll know that this was a definitive break in traditional warfare. There were no... You're, you know, like you got your two armies on one side of the field and the other on the other side, and then you just kind of like come to a clash. No, right. this is the the introduction of trench warfare, which resulted in the creation of these really hard lines called fronts. So you had right. the Western Front, the Eastern Front. Those didn't actually move too much. Like it was insane the amount of loss of life just to achieve, say, a half a kilometer, oh half a mile God. or something, Insanity. you know? Insanity. It's, it's horrible, oh really. God. Unbelievable. And obviously the First World War was like kind of the, the early days of like chemical weapons and like it was nasty. It was yeah horrible. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, conventions that came out of World War One yeah. that kind of dictated the parameters of what is actually morally uh, allowed in warfare. And obviously chemical warfare was outlawed. Uh, right. The use of chlorine glass was one of the most horrific things about World War One, But anyways, yeah. <laughs> that actually was a sort of a theory that sort of played a little bit into this, but got, got kind of shot down right away. But we'll, we'll come back around yeah. to the mm-hmm. idea of gas and things like that. But coming back down to the Sandringhams, as, as they've kind of become known, they were formed in the early days, kind of before they went off. We're talking about 1915 as the disappearance. But in the summer of 1914, it was really interesting just because patriotism was at an all-time high. And various groups of friends from across Britain, whether they're working together at the king's estates or other places, they were kind of keen to join the territorial army, a lot of these these men. And essentially, they joined what was known as E-Company. So this was prior to 1915, and it was called the Sandringham Company at first, and then it changed to E-Company. But all of these men knew each other. They grew up playing cricket together from the same villages. They were dating the same girls, drinking at the same pubs and all that kind of stuff. And so when they joined with C Company as the members of the 5th Territorial Battalion, they were ready to go to war together. They were, it was almost like 
I don't even know. It's like joining a basketball team or something. You know what I mean? It's like this, yeah. it's like the camaraderie of like going to do something together. Exactly. And that's a really important point you just hit on there is the fact that a lot of men that knew each other and lived in communities together, went to war together and fought in the same companies, which resulted in a lot of massive tragedies for certain communities where say, um, mothers lost their entire, like the, all of their sons in oh, yeah. one go all or in the same battalion. Exactly. Yeah. Or even just like multiple generations fighting alongside each other each other and then they're none of them come home and right. they actually did with world war ii they changed that so that you couldn't be in the same exact company you had exactly. to kind of split them up just to avoid that scenario totally because this was the first sort of reference or example i guess of what was known as the pals battalions i hadn't heard that mm. reference before huh. but it's essentially like military units made up of men who had been like you said from the same place, their brothers, mm-hmm. their cousins, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and it They're makes pals, sense too. Italians. If you think about it, right? Pals, like you want to fight with the the people that you love and respect and trust. Trust is huge in war. So, you know, you Good would think maybe, yeah, morale, motivation, all these things. Yeah. So these men had been training together. Morale was high because they knew each other. They were sort of working for about a year doing this sort of territorial battalion training. So not a very long time for preparing to go into war. Uh, but while all this was happening, the king had been keeping a very close eye on their progress. He was showing up uh, and to, to watch their training. He was uh, sent telegrams about their progress. And even he sent a telegram before they actually left for war, wishing them best wishes and luck, expressing, you know, his confidence in them and that he uh, he expected them to do really well. And when they found out that the battalion was being sent, Frank Beck actually gave this sort of epic speech. He was pretty old at the time, but he committed to go into war with his men that he had trained. And he gave this speech on his front lawn about taking care of the men. Their families were in attendance. And this was a quote from Frank Beck. He said, I formed them. Uh, How could I leave them now? The lads will expect me to go with them. Besides, I promised their wives and children that I would look after them. And uh, so he was 54 at the time. He was definitely past the age of like being required to go or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And so the group was formed and the men set out along with, you know, thousands of other troops. The 5th Battalion of the Norfolk Regiment set sail from Liverpool on July 29th, 1915. And they were aboard a pretty nice ship. It was a luxury liner known as the Aquitania. And Mm. not started off nice. I don't think their overall voyage was too pleasant, though. Um, But it is key to note, I want to point out that the territorial army was not actually required to go abroad. But like we said, they were just really eager to fight for king country. And there were a number of other regiments involved, massive shipment of troops uh, joining up with the smaller uh, company of the Sandringhams and other members of this Norfolk Heading over into uh, a brand new front. This wasn't the Western Front that they had heard reported in newspapers and stuff like that. This was something entirely different. They were about to hit the battlefields of Gallipoli. Yes. So the battlefields of Gallipoli and that particular theater of war, that campaign known as the Dardanelles campaign, was a very interesting dynamic theater that was characterized by a lot of uh, foreign elements for the Allied powers going in. And it basically was a storming the beaches style kind of thing. So obviously the Turks have landed, they have their position, it's their territory. And basically you're going in on your, like, what did they call those ships? I wish I had like, you know, like those... Um, like landing vessel The things. platoon yeah. type things yeah. where they just like show up and just, it's just waves and waves. And in my mind, I picture that MCR <laughs> music video. Oh my God, or totally. Or anything to do with Saving Private Ryan. But anyways, I think that Saving Private Ryan was World War II though, wasn't it? I believe so. Could get that wrong anyways. That movie... Oh, terrified me when I was young. 
But anyway, so yeah, the battlefields of Gallipoli were very drastically different from the Western Front. And the Turks were a very formidable enemy and they were very foreign to the British. Along with, you know, we had Australians there, we had New Zealanders there, we had French people there, Mm -hmm. lots of different... uh, Canadians? Canadians as well. Yeah, exactly. It was a united front. And basically, so this Ottoman Turkish theater of war was characterized by things such as the Turkish aggressions against Armenians and what would later be known as the Armenian deportation and mass genocide. Mm -hmm. So it was in April of 1915 that the Turks began this campaign. And so basically, yeah, there was a huge humanitarian outrage and a need to go and intervene. As well, uh, they were also threatening the security of the Suez Canal and Persian oil wells. They had uh, created blockades and things of that nature. And they were also cutting off Russian ports in the south. So the Germans were blocking the northern ports. Right. And then the Turks were responsible for the southern ports. So it was really important to open up the Dardanelles Strait because it was a very uh, strategic point there. Totally. So essentially, they were trying to force open a southern route. And the Allies landed in Gallipoli in order to accomplish that. They were there for about eight months and it was not a good campaign, not successful. They did not have enough information. They didn't do proper reconnaissance and they just didn't have the resources and the know-how to really achieve what they wanted to. So unfortunately, after eight months, they ended up uh, evacuating. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was after only three days that a stalemate was achieved. So basically, they were fighting along these same lines for like, Months and months and months. That's a quick kind of a stalemate there after yep. all that. Yeah. Obviously, this is World War One. They didn't have the same reconnaissance capabilities with aircraft and stuff like that. That came in much more so in the Second World War. Talking mm-hmm. about gremlins and things like that. Yeah. But yeah, this was, uh, they went in blind. A lot they of the really time. did. Yeah. And it was very unfortunately. Um, I had this quote here from a historical uh, military battle mapping website known as Omni Atlas. And they described the Allied landings at Gallipoli on April 25th, 1915. And so they essentially go on to say that the Allies landed in and around the peninsula Turkey. So we had British and British Indian divisions. We had Australians, New Zealanders, like I mentioned. They were positioned to the north. We had the French on the Asian shoreline. And then essentially the Allies did secure a position and advanced inland against the Ottoman defenders, despite suffering really heavy casualties, mm-hmm. because obviously the Turks had the upper hand. Right. And it was very unfortunate because uh, Ottoman reinforcements arrived shortly, and that's what kind of created the stalemate. So essentially by April 25th, a firm stalemate had formed. And obviously this was very characteristic of trench fronts in World War One. Yeah. Looking at the overall maps of what they were trying to do like it's they didn't make it very far they did describe like there's this one website that i will include and then it kind of goes into the soldiers talking about the conditions themselves and how they were basically like living in and amongst bodies there was obviously a no man's land where there was a lot of dead people just like rotting which was really unfortunate so some stats on the gallipoli theater so like i said we had five divisions initially it would balloon into 15 divisions total so that's uh 400,089 soldiers crazy yes so casualties we had about of the 
approximately just over 160,000 British uh, civilians, or not civilians, sorry, soldiers. Soldiers, yeah. We had about 31,000 killed. And then another additional uh, 3,700 died of disease. Yeah. So there was a lot of that going around. Just picture how hot it must have been in the summer landing there. Oh, my dear Lord. I know you've got some more to say on that in a second, but oh, my gosh, I'm just picturing that in my head. Totally. Actually, there was one uh, veteran here, Stanley Parker Bird, who said that this was just one, one quote that just kind of speaks to these horrors of war. And he said here, there were colossal swarms of these pests which had bred in the dead bodies, not buried in no man's land, where it was impossible to recover them without incurring fresh casualties. Right. He went on to say that they couldn't even, you couldn't even eat anything. You couldn't uncover a piece of food without it being instantly swarmed by flies. And if you went to take a bite of anything, you were automatically eating bugs with it because there's just no way to get them out. There's incessant Man. So you can imagine and just what kind of like imagine if they're like like I'm picturing like black flies that like eat you, you know yeah. what I mean? or like noceums or like those types of insects mm-hmm. where you're they're not just on you they're biting you and yep. like eating you horse flies <laughs> you know, like and horse all flies, that like stuff like that totally oof. yeah so like I said this would eventually become an area of defeat over eight months of fighting in a land invasion until troops were withdrawn. However, this was obviously well after the infamous disappearance of the soldiers that we're speaking of today. And in the chaos of the bloodbath, the legend goes that these 250 men seemingly vanished into the mists of battle on August 12th, 1915. So let's get into the disappearance. Okay. So like Amber said, August 12th, 1915... The men were led by Sir Horace Proctor Bouchamp or Bucamp. I don't know exactly how to pronounce that. British officer, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So they set out for the Gallipoli Peninsula from Liverpool, like we said, aboard this luxury liner. And they arrived at Gallipoli on the 10th of August, 1915. Morale was relatively high when they left, like we said. But as people kind of were traveling, things sort of degraded as far as health goes, uh, dysentery lack of water general illness and the heat too and the heat it was cold at night extremely hot during the day and this was not exactly working out for these guys um but they did land and you know they were still at least in good enough uh, a good enough position to fight to go into battle the rough location was at kushuk and farah ova gallipoli So August 12th, 1915, 250 men of what's been colloquially referred to as the Sandringham Company or E Company of the Norfolk 5th Battalion would see their very first glimpse of direct violence, their very first action in the First World War. On top of being on the enemy's home turf, they were, like I said, very poor physical condition. Like they only had two pints of water to last them three days Yikes. In these types of conditions. And, th- and they're fighting, they're sweating. Like, that's, I, I drank that in like in a couple hours. You know what I mean? Like, that's not and enough water. I think that's an important point that we should circle back on when we're talking about theories, because uh, lack of water can do a lot of things to your mind. Right. <laughs> Indeed. Oh, man. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like we said, this is all due mostly to the rigors of the journey heat, side effects from lack of sleep, 
I mean, yeah, harsh climate, all this stuff. Even, yeah, like just the seasickness element. A lot of these men hadn't spent time, on like extended boat. time on a boat. Yeah. Totally. So like they were already just out of sorts just because of that. Could you imagine not having sea legs? Like even when we spend a couple hours on the dock and it's wavy and it's going back and forth and you get onto dry land, you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like, do you imagine days and days of that? And then oh you're supposed God. to go fight and uh, be strategically killing other people? Hmm. hmm. <laughs> yeah, you, that could be difficult, no doubt. <laughs> yeah. Nevertheless, they, that's exactly what they did. And it all started around 3.15 p.m. where they were gathered in formations. They had been essentially given maps that didn't actually include the targets that they were told to attack. About an hour later at 4.15 p.m., the whistles blew and the Norfolks began to advance. And this was led by uh, Colonel Bouchamp, like we mentioned, waving his cane as the story goes and shouting, on the Norfolks, on. And Captain Frank Beck was supposedly at the head of his his men, the Sandringhams, and they began to advance towards the Turkish enemy in that late afternoon, along with other members of the 5th Battalion. Terrified, exhausted from the heat, they advanced into battle, and then the bloodshed began. Mm-hmm. So let's get into that. Well, okay, yeah, and like we said, it seemed that a lot of factors were not on their side and fate was kind of not on their side too there were confusion amongst the orders Uh, some thought the plan was to clear um, away the enemy's forward positions to prepare the main assault while others actually thought that they were supposed to go to the village of antifarta saga or saga sorry Mm -hmm. um on this like ridge that was ahead of them and it's kind of sad because a lot of these maps lack the details that the soldiers actually needed to make those decisions and to get to the positions that they were supposed to be in. And these men were not in a good placement. Like we said, the Turks had the upper hand. This was their home turf and they had already covered many areas. So you had to watch out for things like snipers. You had to look out for tanks and other like Turkish artillery guns that were hiding in and amongst the brush. So there was a lot of danger lurking in unseen places. So basically, as they started to advance, uh, the Turks turned their machine guns on the troops. A lot of men were just mowed down instantly. And meanwhile, snipers are beginning to take out the officers one by one. There was this quote here I had from an article from Vintage News, and it says here, quote, the men instantly made a mistake and separated from the rest of the brigade, turning in a wrong direction. Although they must have realized their mistake, they continued to advance towards Cavatefe, a ridgeline, without reinforcements or supports. They were met with a rain of machine gun fire and numerous snipers. Yet, as the story goes, the surviving members of the Norfolk Regiment, along with Colonel Bouchamp, managed to push the Turks back towards a forest in and amongst the storm artillery fire. Hmm. End quote. So basically, yeah, this is chaos unfolding. They're pushing, though, and they're trying to do what they were trained to do over the last year or so. Yeah. So as this is all happening, uh, there was actually, the the brush was set ablaze, so there was a fire going on. So there's lots of smoke, lots of dust, clouds, all this stuff. And this obscured a lot of the battlefield and obscured, obviously, the clarity of the vision of the soldiers, right? Like, how do you even know where you're supposed to go at this point? You don't have modern technology. Like, you don't have a GPS telling you advance here or do this. Or, like, I would imagine maybe modern soldiers have today. Hopefully, maybe. I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> this would be <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm being a little bit um, 
I don't, I don't even know, like idealistic. <laughs> well, certainly these guys didn't, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so they continued to march. And it, the story goes that the men of the Norfolk Regiment just continued to bust through the smoke and debris. And they advanced towards this enemy line that was towards the forest. And so this is how the story goes here. So the last of the men faded into the brush and the tree line. And as the smoke settled, the men vanished. So this was from, this is loosely taken from people that survived the battle, right? And they supposedly saw them advance into the clouds, into the smoke, then nothing. Right. So there was a a quote here, well, a series of quotes, sorry, um, about the disappearance by Sir Ian Hamilton. He was a British general at Gallipoli. And he says here, quote, that afternoon, the brigade moved off and in spite of serious opposition, established itself about the A of Anafarta in difficult and enclosed country. In the course of the fight, there happened a very mysterious thing. The fifth Norfolks were on the right of the line and found themselves for a moment less strongly opposed than the rest of the brigade. Against yielding forces of the enemy, Colonel Sir H. Bouchamp, a bold, self-confident officer, eagerly pressed forward, followed by the best part of the battalion. The fighting grew hotter, and the ground became more wooden and broken. At this stage, many men were wounded or grew exhausted with thirst. These found their way back to camp during the night, but the colonel, with 16 officers and 250 men, still kept pushing on, driving the enemy before him. Amongst these ardent souls was part of a fine company enlisted from King Sandringham's estates. Nothing more was ever seen or heard of any of them. They charged into the forest and were lost to sight and sound. Not one of them came back. End quote. Hmm. So this statement, along with others, is what in many ways turned this particular military incident into a sort of groundbreaking historical mystery. Absolutely. And it's interesting because it may sound fantastical, some of the things we're going to get into, but this is not alone. There were other stories that we're going to get into from World War I that kind of exhibited similar things. Yeah. Before we get into that, though, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Hey, friends. Andrew here. I just wanted to take a second and say that it's okay to not feel okay. Seriously, whether it's stress, feeling depressed, relationship problems, or simply feeling held back, like there are roadblocks preventing you from being who you want to be. Everyone has something like this in their lives. But one thing's for sure, it's always better to talk to someone about it. And what better way than anywhere and anytime that's convenient for you? We want you guys to take advantage of the amazing services provided by BetterHelp.com professional, therapeutic, licensed counseling that's tailored specifically to you. It's quick and easy to get started, and it's vastly more affordable than traditional counseling. And there's even financial assistance for those who qualify too. This is a service designed to help you be a better you and take control of your mental health and of your ultimate goals. So take advantage of 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com portal. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash portal. And we're back. So let's get into breaking down the legend. What could have happened to these men? 
Did they genuinely vanish into a strange cloud? And if so, what exactly does this mean? There's been a ton of different theories and stories told about the regiment, but before we get into these directly, here's a little bit of a background uh, just in general, and then we'll really dig into the details. The crux of sort of the idea of UFO involvement or sort of paranormal involvement in general with this story didn't really come up until the 60s, 1965, where there was two, well, there was three that signed off on it, but there was some Gallipoli veterans that stated that they had seen those men march into a strange cloud and took them away, more or less. And this was the sort of the story of the vanished battalion. There was another deep, even more detailed version that talked about how on that particular afternoon, there was a formation of six or eight loaf-shaped clouds, like kind of like a loaf of bread that hovered over the area where the Sandringhams and the Norfolks were fighting. One of these low-lying clouds descended even lower over the men, and after an hour or so, which seems like a very long time, rose very gently and the men had disappeared. Essentially, the clouds sailed off as if they were sentient. They knew where they were going or what they were doing. Interesting. So these statements came years and years later. Uh, added to those veteran statements was the sort of lack of information received by the king or from diplomats or anything like that from the Turks in Constantinople about the idea of prisoners of war. There was a lack of information from the Red Cross about the whereabouts of the men or what had happened to them, whether they had been executed or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So that was just sort of the background. So let's get into more of the details. Yeah. Okay. That was very interesting. You described these clouds as loaves, loaves of bread. I know, right? So I'm, I'm picturing them being very thick. Yes. So like, you know, you can't see through them. Right. I will just say quickly here, it's interesting that this cloud element was kind of added in, I will maybe say, mm-hmm. um, later on, because the the previous descriptions from people that we had just quoted above here were kind of saying they were alluding to the forest more so than clouds. I know. So it's interesting what people remember, right? Exactly. And there's so many experiments that have been done on that, right? Where even just like, if you're paying attention, what's that classic experiment where it's uh, the basketball game? There's uh, one team wearing black shirts, one team wearing white shirts. You're asked to count the number of passes that the white team makes during the thing. Right. And then afterwards, um, the, the, the person that's doing the test will ask you, oh, uh, at what point did the gorilla come out and start beating his chest? And then and you, literally yeah. like over over half, I think it's like close to 75% of people say, what gorilla? Because yeah, they know. weren't even paying attention to that. So totally. just a quick little example, just to see how people like, you know, the things, memory is very partial and fragmentary. Especially and, when it's in such a dramatic, violent, like stressful type of situation and environment, right? Like if you see... You might see something like, and that's kind of what happens with this story. We'll get into in just a sec. There's there's this idea that maybe you're seeing something else and then associating it with the fifth battalion. Yeah, like totally. That, right? yeah. Because mm-hmm. you're you're just seeing a bunch of crazy stuff go on. There's brush mm-hmm. fires being lit. There's debris and dust. There's dead bodies. There's lots going on. Oh my gosh! It's kind of hard to really make heads or tails of it. I would almost think it would be hard to get out of a state of almost just like a dreamlike disillusion or like, or you're hallucinating or something, or I wouldn't know what's delusion, what's not. Like, you know, I always go back to, I used to watch this movie all the time, Atonement War, and just the dreamlike sequence that they portray of, of uh, the main guy, James McAvoy, as he's going through, I think he's at Dunkirk or no, he's not at Dunkirk. He's somewhere anyways. Maybe it was Dunkirk, but he's just like the, the, it's just, 
it's surreal. Yeah. Everything is surreal around you. you. Don't and there's just like all sorts of yeah, like just unusual things going on. You're right. So off I just wanted to make that point. Absolutely. But exactly right. So this leads a lot of people to make these very interesting conclusions of a highly unusual uh sort. Indeed, yeah. Including this UFO thing. Absolutely. There's definitely those who believe that perhaps the men were either being saved or like they had been watched by alien life or something like that. And perhaps uh, because they were from a territorial army and inexperienced and maybe needed some extraterrestrial help, that this is what interfered. Like I said, though, this came up from some New Zealand veterans who stated this in the 60s. And this was actually at a conference called the Anzac Conference, which is on the 25th of April each year. And it was originally to honor the members of the Australian and New Zealand armies. And it's kind of, it's it's evolved into more than that. But it was specifically for honoring those who served at Gallipoli during the First World War. And at this conference in 1965, there was three New Zealand Gallipoli veterans that signed off on a story that is pretty incredible. And it's the major reason for the UFO theory coming to light. Um, The main point of this came from a man by the name of Frederick Reichardt. And Reichardt was a sailor when he first uh, entered the military in 1914. He would end up becoming a member of the British section, the New Zealand Expeditionary Force. Uh, on October 8th, 1914. And he's the one who kind of drove this story. There was two other witnesses, uh, veterans Roger Nunez and, or sorry, Nunez and J.L. Newman, who also signed off on this. It should be noted, though, before I give these quotes, that he had become, Reichardt had become somewhat of a UFO enthusiast. And I actually find this kind of funny because I'm just I'm I'm drawing lines here, even though this is the '60s, it's not the '70s, and he's New Zealand, not a, he's he's uh, he's a Kiwi, not from Australia, but just the name Frederick because of obviously our Valentich episode, and not to anyway. um, lessen his credibility at all. <laughs> uh, hey, I was a Valentich fan. I, I know, I, I, I know, hard on that. But, and some uh, people will go the opposite way on that, but indeed, like uh, <clears throat> Mr. Nickel, hmm. right? Yes. <laughs> Anyway, he was somewhat of a UFO enthusiast, and according to uh, an article I found from a New Zealand skeptics website, he attended a public meeting uh, in Rotorua? Rotorua? Hmm. I've got some Kiwis listening, correct me on how my pronunciation. But he showed up at this conference to discuss UFOs, and this was in the early uh, months of 1965 prior to the Anzac conference. And here he met a guy named Gordon uh, Tucky who was a UFOologist interested in the phenomena, and he had some discussions with Frederick. And Frederick told him about this wartime story that kind of needed to be told. Hmm. So he would show up later on at this conference. He brought along, allegedly, this guy Gordon Tucky to the actual war conference. And he would make the following statements, both verbal and written, and then they were signed off on by the other two witnesses that I mentioned as well. Okay, here's the quote. The day broke clear without a cloud in sight as any beautiful Mediterranean day could be expected to be. The exception, however, was a number of perhaps six or eight loaf of bread-shaped clouds, all shaped exactly alike, which were hovering over Hill 60. It was noticed that in spite of a four or five mile an hour breeze from the south, these clouds did not alter their position in any shape or form, nor did they drift away under the influence of the breeze. They were hovering at an elevation of about 60 degrees as seen from our observation point 500 feet up. Also stationary and resting on the ground right underneath this group of clouds was a similar cloud in shape, 
measuring about 800 feet in length, 200 feet in height, and 200 feet in width. This cloud was absolutely dense, almost solid-looking in structure, and positioned about 14 to 18 chains from the fighting in British-held territory. All this was observed by 22 men of the number 3 section of number 1 field company New Zealand Expeditionary Force, including myself, from our trenches on Rhododendron Spur, approximately 2,500 yards southwest of the cloud on the ground. Our vantage point was overlooking Hill 60 by about 300 feet. As it turned out later, this singular cloud was straddling a dry creek bed or sunken road, and we had a perfect view of the cloud's sides and ends as it rested on the ground. Its color was a light gray, as was the color of the other clouds. The battalion was marching up this sunken road or creek towards Hill 60. However, when they arrived at this cloud, they marched straight into it. About an hour later, after the last of the file had disappeared into it, this cloud very unobtrusively lifted off the ground and, like any fog or cloud would, rose slowly until it joined the other similar clouds, which were mentioned at the beginning of this account. On viewing them again, they all looked alike, as peas in a pod. All this time, the group of clouds had been hovering in the same place, but as soon as the singular ground cloud had risen to their level, they all moved away northwards, towards Thras, in a matter of about three quarters of an hour. They had all disappeared from view. This was the final quote they added onto the written section at this ANZAC conference. We, the undersigned, although late in time, we, the undersigned, although late in time, that is, at the 50th jubilee of the Anzac landing, declare that the above-described incident is true in every word. Signed by witnesses Frederick Reichardt, Nunez, and J.L. Newman, as I mentioned there before. So, pretty interesting. There's yeah. definitely some lots to pick apart there. There's some inconsistencies um, that we'll get into in a second about the date, the oh, location. Yeah. He makes references to Hill 60, which was at a slightly different location at the Gallipoli Eastern Front. Okay. So there's this sort of strange thing as to whether or not he was even seen the 5th Battalion, if it was a different regiment. Clearly saw something very strange, though. He's either making it up outright or this was an incident where something extremely bizarre happened. And, of course, yep. going back to Sir Ian Hamilton's quote that you read earlier. The forest element. Where there he's clearly suggesting that something very strange happened. Whether this is some sort of a conspiracy cover-up comes up in our theory section as well. But that sort of adds into this because clearly yeah. something odd took place. You have to take into account, too the element of that Gordon Tucky character, uh, you can definitely lead a witness, you know what I mean? Like uh, into either divulging details that you have implanted in their minds, like an inception type thing. It's possible. Um, or you're just finessing what they're telling you. I'm, I'm curious about the nature of their relationship, to be honest, like how old Tucky was compared to the veteran, uh, what Tucky's leanings were, all that kind of thing. He's a very interesting character. Mm -hmm. But as far as the actual statements made, if we can just touch on those, like the clouds are interesting. Like I was just looking up like, you know, like what could be comparable as far as like, like I just literally just Googled UFO clouds and like you come up with lenticular clouds that are very UFO like and they're very thick. Yes. 
bread like i'm not sure sure maybe i don't know but maybe that's what he was seeing was these lenticular clouds they do form in the like lower stratosphere so that could maybe account for it and they do tend to stand right. so they they don't tend to move very fast which they kind of defy a lot of what people normally think of as clouds because sure. they're a little bit rarer too so depending on the breeze it could almost be it could yeah. be moved in a way that seems as if it's intentional movement yeah and let's get into the movement because to me it was described as very purposeful yeah that's what it seemed like for and sure. Can we just touch on the one descriptor here that was like, it was so funny. It's a, this cloud moved very unobtrusively, or sorry, this cloud very unobtrusively lifted. <laughs> how does a cloud, how is a cloud obtrusive? I guess it just, like to me, I just <laughs> took that as like very gingerly, very yeah. gently. Yeah. Yeah. So it very delicately lifted yeah. itself off the ground. That's interesting to me. And then the, the other part where it was like a formation seemingly, like when we talk about UFOs in the past, we've talked about various formations, like even the Maury Island incident had a, a mm-hmm. formations. What was the other one that I'm thinking of? Was it Charlie Red Star where there was like the formations or it seemed as if there was one mother craft and then things yes. docking off of it? Yes. That yeah, type I of thing? I believe it was the Charlie Red Star case. And then how, again, there were similar situations where it's like either pilots have witnessed ufos entering or disappearing into clouds or coming out of clouds and then vice versa like yeah like almost like cloud like ufo formations we've we've talked about it all so yeah yeah what do you think though like well not not getting (laughs) into i mean not get yeah i mean like not getting into the discrepancies in in reithart's story like i i kind of agree with what you're saying maybe he could have been not coerced isn't the word but just sort of like guided into that if he was already interested in ufos what Mm -hmm. i find interesting though is having the other men sign off on it they didn't have the same face-to-face go meet up with um the ufologist beforehand i just like that name i know right (laughs) ducky that's what i say turkey almost sounds like turkey ducky he's tucking it in (laughs) tuck me in gordon (laughs) was that a rupaul reference Oh, actually, no, it wasn't. But yeah, now it is. <laughs> there you go. Um, so I really don't, I don't think they were abducted from the cl- Like, here's the thing. It's like you just said, UFOs have been seen coming out of clouds. You know what I mean? It's like we've dealt with this idea that there's almost this idea of like portals or like they're good hiding places for, for UFOs and things mm-hmm. like that almost, you might say. So that yeah. it's like the cloud in and of itself is not the what the paranormal aspect is, but maybe there was something inside of it. Well, and then you have to think of the connection between UFOs and water and all a cloud is, is water, right? It's just vapor. So we've talked about electronic fog in the past that affecting pilots and things of that nature. Like what if water and UFOs just kind of have some sort of symbiosis to a certain degree where we're either they're able to manipulate water molecules however they want it's almost like the idea of weaponizing weather right and we are working on that right now i know there's technology that exists that can direct clouds and can direct rain or can create droughts in certain places too which is uh, more and more uh dangerous which is so fascinating because at the same time we know so little about like thunderstorms things like that like about clouds really like there's a lot more to be learned about lightning about lightning Mm -hmm. the way it can seemingly communicate and there's like strange energies at work and things like that so maybe ufo is just sort of this strange blanket like obviously that's going to get applied especially in the 60s like this was never yeah like this didn't come out right away at 1919 or anything like that like we said yeah it's like almost like ufo is like the blanket umbrella term for anything unexplained Uh, yeah unexplainable phenomena 
aerial phenomena. Well, when people disappear, yeah, yeah, obviously aerial phenomena. And of course, we didn't have bodies. There was no, Hmm. there was no, they didn't go until 1990, until later, right? Yes. And that is a point we'll touch on at the end there because that is important. And there are factors that will say, or sorry, sources, I should say that, um, say that they've never found them. And then there are other sources that account for most of them. True. But what is interesting though, like you said off the top of the show, there's a ton of other UFO stuff related to World War One. Yeah. So it kind of comes back to this interesting idea because like you said, Andrew, ufology was not hot. It was not a, a topic that people were like, you know, aware of generally in pop culture, that type of thing. And so there was a lot of other sort of interpretations like divine intervention type things. And yeah, there were, there were lots of other examples. So it's kind of funny, like, what you just described there seems like an extraordinary statement, but it's not alone in its like sort of paranormal leanings. And like I said, there's these other stories that have cropped up that point to extraordinary situations and encounters uh, by World War One soldiers during various battles and in various circumstances. There was a book actually published recently by Nigel Watson called UFOs of the First World War. And this kind of dives into the paranormal angle. It describes accounts, um, including that of like angels appearing in battlefields. Mm-hmm. There was uh, this very intriguing one from the Red Baron that I'm going to touch on. And then, of course, this infamous story we're covering today. So let's touch on quickly here the story of the Red Baron. So the Red Baron, if if people aren't familiar with him, he was a German pilot. And he actually was the... He was like the the foremost ace, I guess you would call him. Like he took down more more allied planes than any other pilot. Pretty, Very pretty insane. infamous. Super infamous. You can look him up. He's got he's actually quite handsome. He kind of reminds me of Bob Hope. And he was actually related to our old landlord. I was just going to say yeah. fun ITP trivia. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a relative we used to rent from uh yeah, was related. Yeah, related to the Red Baron. So bizarre. Not our relative. Not our relative, sorry. Uh, yeah. Our uh, landlord. Was she a was an elderly German red. lady yeah. from the she was from northern germany and, right. and she it was like her second cousin or something of that nature or uncle yeah I think. yeah pretty wild stuff so this story takes place in belgium in the spring of 1917 and the legend goes that there were two so it was the baron along with uh, another german air force ace peter weitzreich weitzreich <laughs> and they were engaged in battle when they spotted what appeared to be an upside down silver saucer maneuvering through the dogfight so weitzreich or sorry weitzreich attests that the baron and himself were both terrified because they'd never seen anything like it before and according to this witness uh, the saucer did display many details including these like bright orange lights that were dotted all around the craft Interesting. And he described how the Baron, uh, the Red Baron, shot it down, and they witnessed as the saucer crashed into the nearby Belgian woods. The weirdest part? The two occupants that allegedly escaped the burning wreckage, (laughs) disappearing into the woods. And initially, they actually both assumed it was like a top-secret U.S. military craft, But later on, they started to read into these accounts that were very similar to theirs. And they actually began to formulate the idea that it was a UFO they saw. And that's, that is, that's so cool. I Mm -hmm. mean, it it just makes you think it's like, is this the early stages of when 
the German German governments and these types of governments started reverse engineering craft. I know, right? Like that, prior oh. to Roswell and all that stuff, obviously, right? Like it anything makes you like wonder. that. Like it's because you had the airships too, right? Those uh, there's so many different evolutions in supposedly like extraterrestrial UFO technology. I'm air quoting here, right? Um, <laughs> but it's very interesting, and of course, that last little nugget there that I said that they at first assumed it was just a military craft, then later on kind of reversed that and thought it was of out of this world kind of thing. Yes, that again is kind of similar to the the story we're discussing today, where these there is the idea that these um, concepts can be implanted later on, and that you can sort of change or reverse your interpretation so yeah it's up to you guys which version you'd like to believe sure do you think there were silver saucer like you know u.s military crafts i don't know mm. maybe maybe <laughs> let's get back to the vanished regiment for a second here because there were some inconsistencies with the statements that you mentioned above and yes. like you said dates were one of those right yes. so according to reichardt's statement the incident happened in, quote, the morning of uh, August 28th, although he admitted that it might have been wrong. And that, again, I'm reading that right now, and I'm like, no, we had August 12th as the date before. Like, he he admitted that he might have the date wrong because he, like, lost count of time because of the fighting and because of how intense it was and that he didn't ex- – this is 1965, so this is years later, and he was like, you know what? I might have been a week or two off. Okay, so the 28th to the 12th, I guess, yeah, that's about a 14-day gap. I guess you could maybe throw it, a guy bone. It's maybe. decades later. I mean, I can think back and be like, oh, I remember doing something that summer, but it was actually two summers before. Yeah. Right? It's like, I, right? You know what I mean? Like, oh, we went camping. It's like, no, we didn't. We went camping four years ago. Oh, mm-hmm. I thought it was last year. Oh, shit. Yeah, uh, no, I, I mean? I, like, I, I don't totally... know. It's easy to forget. Exactly. So what do you think? Do you actually take any value in his statement then? I genuinely think that... <sighs> It's hard to make judgments without meeting and knowing people specifically or like having other like, again, like uh, statements from friends and family, kind of like we had with Frederick Valentich for that Mm -hmm. case. But I feel like a veteran that is going to this anniversary conference, you got two other guys that are signing off on it with you. It seems very genuine to me. Like I genuinely feel like he saw something very strange. The fact that the dates are a little bit off, and again, like the Hill 60 reference was not the same location. There was different regiments mm. that were going into battle there. It was like the first Norfolks and not the fifth battalion. Okay. But again, the dates were, he, he might have that a little bit off kilter. I mean, he even had it off kilter where he was like, I was there until a certain date, but he actually had left. He had like dysentery and had he got he got evac'd for sickness and it was like mm-hmm. a week before. So then again, that's sort of either... A week before what? Uh, before he thought he had actually left. So he so again, oh, like the dates okay. were a little off. Does that add credence to his story because he again sort of slipped up a little bit on a date or does that take away from it? I mean, you can make that call, the listeners. But from those quotes I read earlier, I genuinely believe, genuinely believe that these men saw something extremely bizarre mm-hmm. for sure well yeah and, and whether or not it is related to this fifth norfolk or anything to do with what we're talking today it is kind of bizarre right there were other stories too like you know that came out as far as like angels appearing on battlefields of of you know like especially during retreat re- retreats i should say like the battle of the mons in 1914 for example and a lot of people describe that as a saint or an angel at the time other people go on to describe that as an alien that appeared in a form that was recognizable to the men mm-hmm. that was a ufologist i can't remember his name off the top of my head but there's a lot of this going on right where there's a lot of inconsistencies and a lot of uh, conjecture that results from your personal interpretation of 
either if you were there, like this guy was literally there and he's right. trying to just like sort through the chaos of his memory, I would mm-hmm. imagine, right? Mm-hmm. And then you get the tuckies of the world that kind of latch onto it and be like, this could be something that's a really big nugget. Anyways, Rikard did say, like he went on to say, like there was this statement from Turkey that they had neither captured nor made contact with this particular regiment. And this was a statement made in 1918. And we don't know where he actually sourced this information from. There were other sources I saw that like, basically said the Turks denied everything having yes. to do with it as far as potentially um, having just executed the men after they had, you know, strayed into enemy lines. Right. There was this other idea that uh, <laughs> there was an actual, there was a bayonet counterattack that wiped out these reserve companies. Right. And I think that was one statement made by Turkish authorities. But then that, okay. Not sure when they made that statement, though. Yeah, and, and I didn't find any reference to that other than this. And yeah. and the thing oh, that doesn't... I have another reference that kind of corroborates you that. You do? Okay, great. The other thing that doesn't really add up with that is the fact that, we'll get to it in a sec with the theories, but there wasn't exactly a lot of, like, bayoneted corpses found. There was a lot of corpses, but they found some other corpses with other very specific yeah. injuries. The injuries of the men is something interesting because... Their bodies weren't recovered until much later. Um, there was one source. Oh, let me just go down a little bit further here. I feel like we're skipping ahead a little bit. We are a little bit, but okay. Do you want to just save that for a little bit? Do there? you want to just chip? Let's 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 tick off the boxes here of a couple things. I think we can get through really quick. Probably not a portal that they walked <laughs> into. Let's just go ahead and say that because there have been some people who are not not hardcore UFO enthusiasts that will take the quotes from those New Zealand veterans, and it sounds kind of like the men walked into some kind of a portal, like they they it was. Clearly a very strange like cloud-like thing. We've talked about UFOs coming and going from these yeah. things. If they vanished and we're not believing there's an actual craft involved, they're taken inside of something, then the other alternative to me from a paranormal sense would be that they walked into another dimension. Yeah, there was like a tear in the dimensions and they kind of disappeared into it. We've talked about that, like time Absolutely. slippages even, or in the case of Skinwalker Ranch, the idea of these portals opening and closing. Exactly. And... Things either being seen through them or creatures coming out of them. Right. Yeah. So let's tick that one off because I just don't necessarily think that that really adds up because of some evidence we got later on. The whole poison gas cloud thing also, people suggested that earlier Mm -hmm. on. There was no evidence really to suggest that. And also there would just be a bunch of bodies and it's not going to vanish and disappear. What about the, just the idea of pure hallucination and uh, just physical exhaustion leading to delusion? Because I did mention, like, when you were talking about the limited supply of water, if you don't have enough water, you're going to start seeing things that aren't there. You're going to, even the idea of, like, different gases, different chemicals, I think they're all given amphetamines to a certain degree. So all these different things kind of working on your mind. But the men did vanish. So they did, so whether or not Reichardt was, <laughs> whether or not Reichardt was seen that situation and was hallucinating, mm-hmm. dehydrated, whatever, the fact remains that men marched into a battle and didn't return and nobody found their bodies until much, much later. And we still yes. haven't found all of the bodies. So let's continue on here. Divine intervention probably can tick that off as well no exactly yeah like (laughs) sorry i'm just like i'm getting ahead of myself here but yeah i know like i already mentioned the battle of the mons is one example and i honestly i think that that is one example because that was supposed to be catastrophic losses for the british they were in full-scale retreat it was a disaster they should have 
they should have lost thousands and thousands of men. They only lost 1,600. And a lot of the men, as they were retreating, they described how they either felt a presence or saw something. And they thought that it was protecting them, almost like a divine angel of some degree. Or is it the drugs? I don't know. But <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, a lot of people thought that there were, like, signs from God. Like, you know, like, there was the divine will that defended the uh, the honor of the cause of going to war, right? Because they, totally. it was still these lines, right? These very traditional lines of king and country, of honor, of all this kind of stuff, right? Absolutely. You go into battle to... In, in any ways, it's like it's like a, a entrance into manhood for a lot of these men. So totally. that's a huge thing too. And you would think that there's a lot of religious overtones in going into war too, right? Hundred percent. And funny enough, I mean, there's a lot of religious connections. Obviously, like you've kind of said already, like to the UFO phenomena and the idea of angels being yeah. associated with extraterrestrials and stuff like that. Like I've been reading through a um, uh, UFOs and antiquity book, Jacques Vallée, and it's interesting, like some of the ones where it's like an angelic being, they have like these little symbols for each story, kind of whether it's an encounter, it's a it's a creature, it's a craft or whatever. And yeah, like the earlier days, like it was seen as that, like the stories are, are relayed as if like an angel came down or an angel took me mm. into its ship or like things yeah. like that. And then to me, like just mentally, the connection I'm making to the crown, like to the Sandringham company is like, if you can associate angels and aliens or that idea obviously the the king the king is the closest thing to god right like this yeah. is 1915 this isn't like the early days of the english crown where they genuinely maybe believe that like the king was actually talking to god was mm-hmm. like the closest connection to god so there's this kind of like triangle of a connection here to me you know <laughs> so what i mean where angels like, and aliens that's like a new podcast we gotta come uh, up with that <laughs> like actually that's a good name <laughs> or a new totally. book it's like what's it, angels and demons angels and aliens <laughs> <laughs> but like, you kind of get what I'm saying there. Like, there's this connection. Like, if it was yeah. an earlier account, <laughs> there's a holy trinity. Yeah. You're like making a triangle there. Yeah. That's so funny. <laughs> but I mean, there kind of is. Like, if this, if these men are the, you know, it's the king's men. They're men that had been a territorial army. They're not professional soldiers. Maybe there's a little bit of empathy from from a from a higher power. Yeah. And there's like that association. You know, I, that is a very interesting angle. The idea that. Your your epistemology, your way of knowing, defines how you interpret the the stimulus around you, right? So if you experience something like an alien, if you're if you're not religious at all, you're not going to interpret that as like a divine thing or like an angel. You're going to interpret that as like something else, right? Like something yes. like we do, where it's like, oh, it's it's a interdimensional creature or something like that. Probably my favorite version of that is like if you really want to get into something weird, is the idea of like the Virgin Mary and her encounter with an angelic being that impregnated her. Oh, is Jesus an alien? <laughs> anyway, sorry, we're not going ancient aliens here. I just love bringing that up. <laughs> but getting back into this whole, like, the UFO phenomena relating to the First World War and, yeah, the idea, like, this guy here, uh, Kevin Goodman, he's a UFO researcher, and he has his own interpretation of this story of the Battle of Mons. So right. specifically the idea that witnesses uh, that were being evacuated from the scene described this angelic being some described it as saint michael or saint george some actually described it as like a wall of angels or a crowd of angels interesting yeah exactly yeah. so that was interesting to me just because again right it kind of goes along with were these guys were a lot of people delusional like even the red baron story i'm like were they delusional like you know like well i mean people I- were seeing all sorts of weird like gremlins even like you know what i mean like if you're if you're if you have no sleep uh, you have lack of water lack of food 
It's hot. I don't know. There's You're so many struggling factors. with all kinds of different things. No, for sure. And I mean, actually, this I feel like this kind of ties into that, the idea of maybe a little bit delusional and also a little bit ironic because you said like, you know, World War One, like this is co- sort of a new era of war. It's not this. It's not the same, like line up on either side and charge at each other. It's trench warfare. But it was so antiquated at the same time. Like, I feel like the military minds were kind of delusional even before dysentery and the heat and anything set in. Like, literally, they were like before their initial attack they were ordered to fix bayonets before their advance even though there was like they were not in range for that to be worthwhile at all Hmm. so it's just sort of like these antiquated things obviously the maps going back to that they were given maps that were either out of date or didn't even include the locations on the maps that they were supposed to be attacking like does that come from just being ill prepared or does that come from being a little like a little like the heat's getting to you things aren't quite right here like is that really just someone didn't do their homework or is it that bad i know (laughs) that seems like a big oversight and i'm not even sure like who was to blame for any of that i know right but that kind of gets back into the whole like what do we have as far as historical evidence like what can we actually go back on besides these statements that are made decades and decades later on and there are some things that were reported like things like even through newspaper headlines for example here and again this just adds to the convolution in my mind but there's lots of gaps information and just imagine this so we're the event itself happens in August of 1915. Yes. There's a lot going on before the wrap-up of that campaign. It it basically ended in, oh, what was it, December or January of 1916 when they started to just evacuate everyone. They're like, yeah, okay, this was a failure. <laughs> yeah. Let's go home. But there was like a, a gap in information and there were initial reports Uh, This was actually reported in January of 1916, so not initial, I guess this is months later, but it was talking about the total loss, quote-unquote, of the Sandringham Company, and how basically it said, Sandringham men disappear, and it goes on to state that these 250 men and 16 officers were pushed deep into the enemy lines, lost from sight and sound, none of them ever came back. Right. So that, again, is like kind of the seeds of, of like, you know, and then that's when you get a lot of people including the king himself, right? Asking around, like you already mentioned, they went and asked ambassadors over in Turkey. They asked the Red Cross that was stationed there just trying to get yeah. glimpse some sort of information and they weren't being given anything. No, and that's strange. But there was one interesting headline and this was about a month later. So February of 1916, Lynn News reports that one officer was recovering from wounds in a hospital as a prisoner of the Turks in Constantinople. So there were men, and he was from the 5th Norfolk, supposedly. So it says here, this is the quote, This news of Captain Coxton will come as a relief, not only to his friends, but also to those who are still awaiting news of other officers and men of the 5th Norfolks. It is obvious that an officer in hospital would have greater opportunities for writing home to his friends than others who were not wounded at that time but our prisoners of war. So that was from Historic UK and basically kind of insinuates that like he was in a privileged position, position, sorry, I can't talk. And so he was able to actually like get the word out there yeah. versus a lot of the other commoners or common folk or how'd you refer to them? The Oh, like the territory. Yeah. Like the, territorials. Like some of the lower level territorial members for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there were the idea that a lot of these guys were basically just mowed down by machine guns. And after they reached a small vineyard and a small group of cottages, they were basically, they just pressed on. And that was Beauchamp. Right. 
or yes. Beau, Beau, what were you saying before? Beauchamp? It's, it's, it's got to be Bouchamp. Bouchamp? Bouchon? Sure. <laughs> I like Bouchon. Let's go with that. <laughs> Super French. <laughs> yeah, you're Bouchard, so there you go. That's easy enough. Yeah, but there, yeah, exactly. So maybe he was just overzealous, you know what I mean? And then they just kind of... Yeah, I, I, I could see that. You know, I, I had this other note up here. Like, okay, this was something we do know, to just to go back to Reichardt's statements, that kind of ties in. Whether you believe he was in the right location, right date, whatever... This was something to kind of draw a black line to some sort of a connection. We do know that the Norfolks, like you said, they advanced about 1,400 yards. And this is where it ties in into a sunken road. Mm. So to me, that kind of mimics what he was describing, kind of a similar type situation. And this was before stopping and awaiting for the the rest of the battalion and awaiting more orders, right? Definitely got mowed done by, by machine gun fire. But the sunken road was a commonality. I thought that was interesting. And then obviously we do know that they were broken up different things. Like they managed to reach a small vineyard, like you said. I mean, let's, let's kind of continue on from there. Yeah. So let's just talk about the bodies because like we said, there were conflicting accounts of whether the bodies were recovered, how many bodies, who they were, were they from the fifth Norfolk's, were they from somewhere else? Like there was a lot of confusion and many of these bodies were only kind of recovered after the end of the war so we're talking 1919 so that's like over three years this one quote i had here from a source here the battalion's chaplain reverend pierre point edwards reportedly found the fifth norfolks when he revisited gallipoli in 1919 he said here quote we have found the fifth norfolks there were 180 in all 122 Norfolks and a few Hans and Suffolks and uh, this two-fourths Cheshires. <laughs> sure. Sure. We'll have to reach out to Charles. There's so many weird places in the UK. And of these, they could only identify two, Private Barnaby and Private Carter. Says they were scattered over an area of about one mi- square mile at a distance of about 800 yards from behind the Turkish front line. Interesting. Okay. Many of them had evidently been killed in a farm as a local turk who owns the place told us that when he came back he found the farm covered with decomposing bodies of british soldiers which he threw into a small ravine Hmm. Hmm. so he goes on to say the whole thing quite bears out the original theory that they did not go very far on but got mopped up one by one all except the ones who got into the farm so 180 is what they're accounting for there very interesting this and yeah like we came across that we came across some other articles corroborating that that the mystery is at least partially solved but there's still inconsistencies with that there and that i've found in other references and it's like whether or not i guess you just have to say which reference are you giving more credence and I still don't know exactly what my conclusion or theory is on this, but like in one of the references we were working with, this was a Time magazine publication, but a a mysteries book. And it references this story, the Norfolks, and it states that following the war, when more of these bodies were found and stories would come out, we have the local farmer like you referenced. But in this article, they stated that about 100 soldiers were discovered that had a single gunshot wound to the skull. Hmm. suggesting that they had been executed in a very controlled environment by the Turks. When you're kneeled down and executed in the back of the head, that's not the type of thing that happens when you're just a couple hundred meters behind your front lines uh, and it's a little bit chaotic. That's when you're like 
in a very controlled environment and you've taken prisoners of war. Well, they could have just gone advanced really far. Like people are saying they went way too far. And so they went way into the enemy lines. And so they could have maybe not been executed summarily in that exact moment, but later on when it was more convenient. Potentially. But then again, this is not on any records from the Turks. They didn't admit to it following the war. There's yeah. no military records whatsoever of this happening, and there's no references in other documents suggesting that they had been executed in the back of the head. So let's just back that up a second. Why wouldn't Turkey admit to executing a bunch of British soldiers? Hmm, that makes sense to me. They're the losers. They're in the Paris Peace Conferences. Sure. They're getting the shit end of the stick. Sure. So how much of that shit do you want? And how much of that I, do you want to I spread totally, to the Germans? I totally understand. <laughs> I totally get that. But it's like, even in 1965, that's a long time later. Like, this isn't like the Japanese admitting to killing Amelia Earhart or something, if they believe that side of the story. This is a little bit more like, okay, wartime. We did this, not so cool. Like, countries admitted to doing stuff like that after the fact all the time. They don't like to, And at least maybe they would have it in their own records. Even if you don't admit to it, it might be discovered somewhere. Wipe those records and then there's no evidence. Not (laughs) one guy has a journal. Like, not one. Well, the Turkish guy said that there was a bunch. He didn't say how they were killed, but he said he just tossed them into his ravine and that was it. And again, too. uh, Yeah, potentially. And And then the other thing that I find curious as well is, like, there weren't any... There wasn't a major effort to track down the surviving members like the guy, the officer recovering in a mm. Turkish hospital yeah, no other to statements. interview them after the fact. That we know of. Not that we could find mm-hmm. in this research because the interest wasn't there. It yeah. wasn't until the statements made in the 60s. But it's like if those statements were made in 1925 or something, I wonder how it would have gone down. Like would yeah, people have pressure. tracked down those surviving members and been like, hey – or people would have like, just come out themselves, right? If they saw in the papers or saw a book published about it or saw something about it on TV. Or I guess TV wasn't around then yet. Because that's another thing too. It's like the surviving members, even if they did experience something extremely strange and it's in and amongst this violence and people are getting massacred, mm-hmm. but something strange happens, it's like they might just chalk that up to PTSD or to being yeah. stressed out and whatever. Or they might not want to relay that story at the risk of being labeled a crazy person because PTSD wasn't a thing back then. You know it I mean? was a thing. It just wasn't. It wasn't diagnosed. <laughs> yeah, it, no, so people didn't know about it. They were yeah. going to say, "Oh, you're you're just right." Yeah. Oh, yeah, you get to. That's totally understandable that you're saying these crazy things. They would be like, "Wait a second, mm-hmm. what's wrong with you?" Into the loony bin with you. Yeah. So I don't know. Do you have any like favorite theories or conclusions or any statements? Because I've got, I've got, you know. T- just talking through all of this, because like obviously we do all the research for these episodes, and once you start to flesh it out when we're recording, I always find that I start to tease out totally more, and I'm starting to kind of favor the idea that <laughs> Ottomans are shady, man. <laughs> the Ottomans, they came up with multiple different stories, right? Because at first they said there was like a counterattack with bayonets, and then they don't admit to anything at all. And then supposedly there's members of the Fifth Norfolks recovering in their prisoners of war hospitals. Mm-hmm. I think the Turks are really shady, and I think they're trying to cover their tracks because okay. they knew that it was going to come down hard. Whoever lost this war like we saw like you know germany suffered like you know like all the all the defeated powers suffered for sure and i think maybe they wanted to wipe their hands with this a little bit but i also think it it is part and parcel right because i think that the lack of knowledge the lack of intel on the part of the allied troops going in 
definitely helped secure their fates, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then I think there could be a weird element because I like how there is consistencies in those statements where you're saying that sunken road, you know, that, that to me points to some sort of consistency between the statement made later, later sure. on, like decades later, but with the veteran and then what was said on the ground and by yeah. other members and officers and witnesses. And then of course the original quote from Sir Ian Hamilton, but then the suggestion that we've kind of stumbled upon in theories is that that whole thing where it's like, oh, they just disappeared was maybe to sort of cover up the fact that this was a blunder, that yep. this was ill-prepared. Yep. They didn't want to admit that they had these territorial army members that were very inexperienced massacred at the hands of the Turks. Yeah. But that just seems like such a, like, I don't even know. I guess it's because mm. like, it's just my paranormal mind in 2020 it's being like, satisfying. who the heck says that in 1915 and doesn't expect someone to be like, uh, UFOs? Like, what, like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, like, what, what do you mean? What do you mean they just disappeared, Ian? Like, in that's crazy. In the larger scope of it, it's almost like, yeah, like, it just leaves, like, we like to do, or, or like, a lot of sources, like, you know, it leaves it up to interpretation, so you can kind of make that closure. You yeah. can, maybe my, my husband was whisked away by an angel in a cloud, like, you know, like, maybe that's right. more comforting for right. the family, you know? Because there was no closure for them, really. No, exactly. Mm -hmm. And no matter what you believe... In, in, in regards to the story, no matter no matter who, who the statements from the New Zealand officers, whatever you believe, this is a perfect example of sort of, I mean, definitely a military history that's just loaded with strange stuff, but also like misdirection. Gaps it's the, too. Gaps and mm -hmm. misdirection. And it's like this, it's, oh man, I don't even know. It's a bread and butter, bread and butter, <laughs> bread and butter. Bottle uh, rubbies. <laughs> bottle rubbies. Hey, perfect. Kiwi reference. Um, it's a bread and butter kind of like a uh, critical thinking story. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because it's got the paranormal, but it's got that super detailed history, rich strangeness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Makes oh, you totally. think. So I don't know. I mean, I'm, yeah, I want to know what you, what you guys believe. I know there's some mm -hmm. UFO nuts listening to this show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the fun of this one too, is even though it's a very serious subject and there is a lot a lot of tragedy and a lot of loss of life that most would now characterize as kind of like, you know, unnecessary to a certain degree. Uh, it, it is one of those ones that's just riddled with mystery. And it is one of those ones where it's like, if you want to believe, you can definitely take up those threads and kind of ignore a lot of other stuff. But I don't like to ignore all the stuff. Like, I think I'm just leaning towards shady Ottomans, man. But no, I think you're, I think uh, you, you're. And then, and then cover up yeah. from the British, right? Because yeah, it's just kind of gloss over it. There was a lot of different examples. I, I'm sure that we could get into from World War One, where it's just like, let's just not go there. No doubt. <laughs> well, on that note, actually, uh, this was like a requested episode. It was in like a poll we did a while back. It seems like you guys want more wartime mysteries, mm -hmm. uh, first and second. So we'll definitely be trying to bring you guys that because we're, we're big history buffs, obviously, as mm -hmm. you can tell. And there are so many strange stories. And maybe we'll stick to UFOs for a little while because there's definitely a few other <laughs> wartime UFO type accounts and things like that. So we want to know what you guys think. Leave a comment uh, wherever. Leave a comment on social media. Follow us at Into the Portal Podcast on Instagram. At Strange Pods on Instagram is our network. If you haven't already, hit us up on Facebook and come chat with us on there. We're pretty active. We love hearing from you guys. And we genuinely want to know what you think of this story. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, yeah, it's the first World War story we've done. World War One story we've done anyway. Yeah, if you guys have any nuggets to add in, if you got any anecdotes from your own family maybe, who knows? Like totally. we, we want to hear it all. So. Absolutely. Yeah. As always, 
Thank you so much to our Patreon supporters, our producer, Tim Godby. You guys are amazing. If you haven't checked us out on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes below, and uh, we have a new episode in the works that's going to be up pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Until next time, on Into the Portal. Your gateway to the bazaar. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.